Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Congratulations on your new job. You went through all the pain and suffering of interviewing. Now, the real work begins. You have to quickly get to the point where you can provide business value so that you can keep your new shiny job. How do you do it? In this episode, we'll be discussing where to look in both the code base and the organization to get your head around what business rules apply in your new environment. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I haven't been fighting so much as I've been playing with something that I thought really was terrible back in the day, and I'm not sure where I got this impression. And that is the uh, Visual Studio database projects. Never done those. Yeah, like so you can manage, you know, like all your stored procedures, your table definitions, data. You can manage it as a project that is source controlled. And, you know, do, you know, migrations and all that kind of stuff. Like that's built in, That like that's a thing. And I had it in my head that this stuff was terrible years ago. And I, looking back at it, I don't know how I came to that conclusion. Hmm. So I want to throw that out there for some of the other .NET devs. Like go poke at that and take a look. Find a YouTube video that, you know, kind of goes through what that is. I found one, I forget from where yesterday I could go look it up, but, you know, we're already on audio because I think there's probably more than just me that had the impression that this stuff didn't work and it works extremely well. I probably will not open SSMS again. Wow. So, yeah. So, in other news, I'm reworking my getting things done system again. You know, like I've thought about a lot of things. One of my big deals is trying to get habit formation, you know, kind of locked down a little bit better. And, and so I'm reworking a lot of things in there. And so you start thinking about the way that you think about thinking about getting things done. Yeah. And it just kind of makes your face hurt after a while. And so I've been doing that this week. How about you? Well, we had our New Year's Eve worship night at church, obviously on New Year's Eve. That was a few weeks back. But, uh, you know, we're recording this after New Year's Eve, recently after, I should say. Yeah. Long enough that the hangovers are gone. Yes. Yeah, we're back at work. Close enough to where I'm still thinking about it. Back to church. I was scheduled to be a videographer, but when I arrived, I was told I'd also be doing photography. That was so cool, to be honest with you. I was all over the place getting video and photos of the band, singers, speakers, worshipers. Afterwards, the pastor's granddaughter, who is also on the media team, came up and told me how cool I looked just running around with two cameras and doing all that stuff. Now, mind you, she's 11, so I look cool to an 11-year-old. Woot, woot. Life goals accomplished. <laughs> but uh, apparently, there's a photographer that was scheduled to be there. Our media lead plays keyboard in the band, and so she didn't have time to give me the background. She just said, hey, you're going to be doing both. Here's what I need you to do, <laughs> and then had to run off. So what I was told is that uh, someone else had been scheduled for photography, but had to cancel, and that the pastor's granddaughter was added to the schedule, but very last minute didn't see it, the notification on her phone from the app that we use for scheduling, and so never responded. 
So there was nobody scheduled to do photography because she didn't respond. She's like, I got here and was told, oh, by the way, we scheduled you for this, but since you didn't respond and didn't come early, we're not going to have you do it. And she's like, you know, that happens sometimes, you know. But uh, so I got to do both. That was really, really cool. Like I felt like a professional photographer going around like doing video and then have a camera in the other hand (laughs) just back and forth. Dude, it was so much fun. Nice. (laughs) Amanda and I got new phones. I went to get a new SIM card in my old phone and they told me there was a buy one, get one on the iPhone 11 up to the 31st. So we each got a new phone. She's already set hers up. Loves the camera. She was sending me pictures today while I was at work. The dogs. And she was just like having fun playing around with the multiple cameras. And uh, she just texted me. So <laughs> On her new phone. On her new phone, yeah. yeah. So it works. Yeah, I haven't gotten mine set up yet. Uh, I'm waiting on the, t- the case to come in from Amazon. So I ordered a, a case for it. And I'm sort of paranoid about the phones. So I'm just going to wait till the case comes in. Then I'll get it set up and get everything transferred over. So, but uh, with these, we got some really cool health apps on them and stuff like that. So, uh, we'll go ahead and get into our book this month. Chapter four of The Healthy Programmer Get Fit, Feel Better, and Keep Coding dives into agile dieting. In it, author Joe Kuttner starts off with a story about being on the high school wrestling team and how he developed terrible eating habits to maintain a certain weight. And he compares the pressure of being on the wrestling team with the pressures we face as developers that lead us to make poor eating choices. The first section is called an iterative approach to dieting. In it, he starts off by pointing out that most fad diets only work by tricking you into eating fewer calories, as the only real way to lose weight is to expend more calories than you take in. He talks about trying different diets for two-week sprints to find the ones that work best for you. Uh, He says to start off with the intention of failing at the diet, and then as you learn what works, sticking to them longer and longer until you get a set of diets that you can stay with the entire two weeks. His next section is about balanced nutrition versus unbalanced idiosyncratic diets. He lists out the recommended daily percentages of different food groups, then states that most fad diets don't meet these percentages, not completely, which is why he suggests rotating through different diets. In the section, Eating Your Brains Out, and unfortunately, this was not about zombies. I was rather disappointed by that. He discusses desire and cravings. He says the next time you want a snack, try solving a difficult puzzle. After solving it, if you're still craving the snack, you likely need food. He even provides a flowchart for conscious eating. In the next two sections, he talks about counting calories and adjusting your intake. At first, he has you calculate your base metabolic rate, then add to that based on your activity. That gives you how many calories you are burning each day. Then he goes into caloric intake. Finally, he talks about how your individual tastes are more important than a diet-specific menu. A few tips he gives for planning a healthy diet include eat foods that satisfy you. 
schedule your eating, make a list of off-limit foods, and rehearse your diet. He's got a lot of really great advice on dieting in just this chapter. The whole book has been just phenomenal, and I'm looking forward to delving even deeper into it. You can check that out in the link in our show notes. Who's talking to us this week? Well, we got an iTunes review from Jiu-Jitsu Ninja, which, by the way, that's a whole lot of throws of shuriken and bodies. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in there. This podcast is so relevant to my life as a developer. I've been binge listening since finding this gem of a podcast. I've listened to several developer programmers podcasts in the past. This is by far the most helpful. These guys have great chemistry and I can't wait to listen every day. They explain things I go through constantly, giving it a name I wasn't aware of and explaining how they handle it. Even their sleep hygiene and burnout topics just started to change the way I live my developer's life. I love this podcast. Thanks, guys. You're awesome. Jiu-Jitsu Ninja. I'm loving that name, yo. Yeah. Ready for anything. <laughs> yeah. Considering the martial arts stuff that Will and I used to do back in college, that just sort of, we were big into the ninja movies and stuff back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a lot of experience throwing each other around. But uh, thank you. Send us an email to waterbottle at completedeveloperpodcast.com because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. You can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Your advertisement could be here. <laughs> All right, this is the second time I've done that. It's still cheesy. <laughs> Guys, if you like the show and would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you reach the people who you are serving. And we promise that, you know, 50% of the time, you know, 100% of the time won't be as cheesy as what Beach just did. Maybe. Yeah, 50% of the time it works 100% of the time. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Unless you're the first software developer hired at a company, you're going to have to quickly get your head around the rules of the software that you're building and working on. While many industries are deceptively simple, you'll usually find that there is a huge amount of complexity involved in any large-scale software system. There's a reason that such systems are complex. If they were simple, they probably wouldn't be getting automated in the first place. Even worse, a lot of assumptions and rules in a particular industry are somewhat hidden, and it may take a while to learn about them. While you can learn the business rules in a particular industry over time by osmosis, that can often mean that it takes months or even years for you to be providing value at the same level as the more senior members of the team. Such an approach is risky. If you aren't providing value in excess of your salary, you could easily be let go if the business takes a turn for the worse. Yeah, with experience, you eventually learn that there are places that you should look to get an idea around business knowledge, both in the code base and in the business itself. A lot of these places will help make your learning faster. And so we've organized this episode around questions that you can ask during your first few months at a new job to start to get exposure to your application's business rules, what they really are, not what devs say they are. These questions will also help you learn more if you've been at the same position for a while and still don't feel like you understand everything that's going on. So first off, what parts of the system are the most brittle and 
bug prone. Yeah, there's several reasons why this is a good way to learn about business logic. Bug-riddled parts of the system that have been bug-riddled for a long time are usually that way because the organization is afraid to mess with it due to how critical it is. There's also just in general kind of a minimum error rate in almost any code base. Some are lower, some are higher, but they're all non-zero. And so the code where the most errors surface is most likely the code that is used most often and is the most critical. If errors are surfacing frequently in a particular part of the code, that also means effort was taken to log these errors. Yeah, you'd be surprised how many places will just log it and just try to manually fix it and go on with life. They're doing that because it's important. It's dysfunctional, mind you, right? Like you should go in and fix the errors and you should clean it up. But a lot of shops are not going to do that. They're just going to log the error and go, okay, how can I mitigate this manually for the time being until we get enough people to actually fix this? Basically, the idea here is to look at the frequency of errors as a way to find important parts of the code base. You know, this also has the benefit of allowing you to become familiar with these critical parts of the code base very quickly, which makes it easier to justify working on them. It helps you learn the whole thing quicker. Yeah, and you should also take a look at which parts of the code base are calling the buggy parts of the code and which portions of the code are being called by that code because these will usually be important as well. It's a way of finding hot spots and then you work out from there is, is basically the idea. And that's why we suggest this. The next question that you want to ask is where does this system integrate with other systems? So every piece of software out there, doesn't matter what it's for, whoever wrote it, had a mental model of how the system is supposed to work. And it may be a completely broken and ridiculous mental model, but they had one. No two models of reality are going to be exactly the same, right? Any conversation with any other human being on the planet will tell you that. Just go sit down and tell somebody at random what you think about politics in the U.S., and you'll probably run into a different mental model, and it will be atrociously different. You can learn a lot from how those things intersect and how they don't. And so that's what you're doing here. It's interesting if you go and I've had conversations with our lead API developer and our former lead UI developer who is now architect about how our newer systems work. And those conversations are completely different. Yeah. And that's two people talking about the same system. Yeah. Versus two people talking about two different ones. Right. And so you're kind of looking at the same thing, which is another way to kind of understand this is just get different perspectives on the problem and then see what the commonalities are and what the differences are and kind of work from there because you can learn a lot from it. The other nice thing about these integration points is that that shows you in code where the mental models change. So you can actually see how one gets mapped to the other. Yeah. And so to point out all kinds of weird stuff that you would never, you know, nobody would tell you conversationally. You can go look at the code though because they had to deal with it, you know, as an error or whatever. Yeah. And on top of that, the integration points in a system show you the edges of the system. Yeah. So if you're not doing something in your system, it's really likely that you're going to offload that to another system if it is still something that has to be done. And a lot of times it's as valuable to know what is out of scope for your system as to know about what is in scope. Because you go, hey, this is a thing we don't do. Why is that? Why was this out of scope? That's very important. A couple of weeks ago, before the holidays had 
had a conversation about this where once I sent the app that I had been working on to be tested, the person who was testing it said, oh, well, where is it storing this data? And we're like, it's not. Like This is replacing what's existing and the existing app doesn't do that. We had talked about that, but when you looked at all the integration points, it was decided, hey, that data should be stored by this other application. And so when we update that, that's when it's going to get stored. Yeah. But it's not currently being stored, so we didn't build that into this. And it's just, it's interesting to see that. And going back to your mental models too, like it's interesting to see where people think things are happening versus where they actually are. Yeah, when you see the edge of the cage. Yeah. You know, I mean, think about it this way. You'll, you'll also see the way that different parts of the organization view things. Like you're saying, it's kind of like if two zookeepers or two zoo maintenance people think that the edge of the line enclosure is in a different place, somebody's going to get eaten, right? Yeah. And you have that in your systems all the time where they go, oh, w- yeah, we do that. Well, you don't really actually do that or you do it partially or you do it badly and nobody uses it. And this will help you suss those things out and get the reality of what's going on, not what people tell you the reality is. Yeah. The thing is, intentional decisions get made to not include certain functionality in a system. And if you find those edges, you can see where that occurred and you can start asking why. This is how you learn more. All this stuff is going to cycle. So you're going to go to an area, you're going to learn some stuff, you're going to ask some questions, that's going to send you to another area. You ask more questions. Like this You know, kind of builds in a loop. It's a feedback process. Mm-hmm. So the next question to ask is, if we have competitors, and by the way, even if you work for a state government, you've got 49 competitors, right? Plus the District of Columbia, which is probably a basket case, but you still compete with them. But if you have competitors, how do you onboard their customers into your product? The process that this happens under tends to be a little different than an API integration because it's, hey, there's valuable data. We've got to get these people in the system so we can make money. What do we do to make that as seamless as possible? Yeah, this makes me think of getting those new phones. But Amanda had been with Sprint and is now on Verizon. And that process to transfer over, like when we went in, we talked to the guy, Josh, that worked there. And he did a great job. Like he knew that process of how do you go from being a Sprint customer to a Verizon customer with and keep the same number. Yeah, and there's a lot going on. So anyone who knows Amanda and knows her phone number, if she didn't tell you she switched services, you wouldn't know because like there was no service disruption. She had Sprint and then she had Verizon and that was it. Yep. So like, but knowing how to do that is what this is talking about. Yeah, because there's going to be so many little wrinkles in there. It's going to be stuff like what data is stored on the SIM card? What data is stored on the cloud of Verizon, for instance, and that you got to pull over? Yeah. What data do you leave behind? What data do you have to collect as you're moving them across? Because, you know, like their billing data, if you send a request to Verizon, give me this customer's credit card number, that's not happening. Yeah. Right. And so you learn a lot from these onboarding processes. Really, what onboarding is, is it's a one time integration process. And it's really important when you're looking at this to pay attention to areas where manual work is required in the onboarding process, as these things tend to indicate things that are very difficult to automate, which means they're radically different between systems. Mm -hmm. So 
When doing this, one thing I always like to pay attention to is the data transformations that happen during an onboarding process. And there's a real good reason why. When you're looking through it and trying to understand a system, the way the data is transformed will a lot of times be a little bit more clear than what you see in other parts of the system. Onboarding data processes tend to be a lot less abstracted than the rest of the system. So it doesn't pass through 15 business layers and all these microservices and stuff. A lot of times it's a SQL script. Not always, but you'll get a lot simpler setup because people want to be able to run the thing, it get done, and it either blow up or it work. And you get a result and you, know, you get that, that feedback loop because you're dealing with multiple vendor versions out there. And so it's expected to blow up. And so you don't have enterprise design patterns in the way. It's just, hey, try it, see what happens, get a result. And as a result, the code tends to be simpler you know, when doing that. So the lack of abstraction that is used in the rest of the system can often point you towards things that make it easier to understand the system itself. And also these systems tend to be built by people that have a deep knowledge of the system that you're trying to import the data into because it takes a lot to get that stuff right. Yeah. The next question you want to ask, what exports does your system have? What data does it need to export on a regular basis for use in other systems? You know, along the same lines as integration points on onboarding systems, it's worthwhile to look at places where large amounts of data leave the system. Really, anytime you've got data in and out, you need to be looking at it. But the the larger is the more prevalent. It's less chatty. Yeah. And that's the reason I kind of pointed at this is because when it's a constant API flow, you may not see as much in the logic on little piddly bits as you would see on a big data dump going out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just um, large data exports are often in the mix when a system has to integrate with an older system. So governmental systems are a primary example of this. You know, you got to send stuff to the local tax board who's using a VAX system from 1972 with the same administrator that they've always had. Yeah. What does that guy need? Because he's got a extremely vastly different view on what your system does and what it's supposed to do. And it's a view that comes from outside the system that's not like in the same space. It's just he's got certain things he needs from it. If exports are happening on a regular basis, it's also really important to pay special attention to the timing of those exports. Is it continuous? Is it daily? Is it something that happens right before tax time every year? Because that'll tell you the things that are important and why they're important based on the timing. Yeah. So like we said, you know, older external systems often frequently include governmental systems or systems of really large old companies. You know, I've done some stuff with LexisNexis recently. And, you know, some of that stuff is you open up a socket and you push data at them as a stream and then you wait and you poll. And then eventually you get a stream back that has all the data coming back in and you've got to deserialize it and handle timing issues and all that stuff like it's, you know, 1995 and you're working over a modem. Like it's built that way, right? And that's okay, right? It's an older system. That's just the way life is. But you can learn a lot from that. You want to pay attention to what is being sent out and especially what data is being filtered out. Yeah. So why is that thing not included? If it's there and it doesn't go out, why is that? Because you're probably looking at your side at SQL queries that are then, you know, being transformed into some other format, maybe a CSV, whatever. When you see that, that's a tell. You need to write that down and you need to ask somebody about it because there's a reason. Yeah. Sometimes the data in these exports 
it's going to be the same data that's considered critical by the rest of the system, but that might not always be the case. Yeah. And you want to pay attention to when that varies. Yeah. So if it's not critical to the rest of the system, you know, it may be my family's in the oil business has been since, and it's one of the businesses anyway, since the 40s. And we have systems there that track the amount of oil coming in tanks or, well, gasoline, kerosene, diesel coming into tanks. And we've got like a warehouse management system that kind of handles all this stuff. But when we send out reports to the state, we have to send out things relating to the amount of fuel that disappeared out of a tank that we can't account for. Now, that's not the primary role of the system, but it's really important for the state because that tends to indicate a leak. So when you see a variance there, it's like, oh, we lost three gallons of gas in this period. Well, when you're shipping trucks around that have 8,000 gallons of gas in them and they're going day in and day out, you don't care about three gallons, but the state cares very much because it might be a little pinhole leak in the bottom of your tank. And so when you start looking and going, okay, why is this data that's not critical, in air quotes, to my system, why is it critical to this third-party system that I'm sending data to? Ask questions around that because once you start seeing that, you start to see things that the developers don't focus on in your system, but they're still important either for regulatory compliance or for some aspect of the business that maybe doesn't get touched a lot, if that makes sense. Yeah. So the next thing you want to ask is, where is the most sensitive data in the system and why is it sensitive? Yeah, and I want to preface this a little bit because don't ever ask this on your first day. (laughs) Build up a little bit of trust with the other developers before you start going, what's sensitive data in the system? Because they're starting to think about exfiltration of said data when you do it too early. You know, it's just a good idea. You know, it's like you can ask your grandmother where the silverware is, but like you don't ask the random new neighbor that just moved in. I feel like I have to tell this to tech people because sometimes people don't quite click on this. They don't get the nuances of conversation. (laughs) Right. That's why we talk to computers. This is the important information to know. You got to play the game. Well, you haven't gone through the handshake protocol fully yet. Exactly. And you're going to drop a packet. You know, it's going to be bad. Here's the thing. From a security perspective, data is not an asset. It is a liability. If your software is collecting and keeping sensitive data, there is a reason for it. In the current environment, you don't just grab data, unless you're Google. (laughs) And it may be a liability for them real soon. Because of the nuisance of having to protect sensitive data, it's not done lightly when you do it. And this can be anything from PCI data to HIPAA data to sensitive personal financial information. I've worked on systems where it had medical billing. And so it was stuff like, here's your most recent bill for your hepatitis treatment. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and it's got PCI and HIPAA in there, right? If that data is in the system, somebody is collecting value by it being. So if you look for where this data is, you can find out what some of the rules are around the business. Pay careful attention to places where this data is accessed and changed. Access of sensitive data tends to be in processes that are system critical, with most other processes remaining ignorant of the data. 
at least they should be remaining ignorant of the data. Yeah, I mean, I've seen systems where, like, they sent credit card information down to the browser. Like, if you got in somebody's login and you were able to log in with their password, you could get their credit card number because they sent it down to the browser and loaded it into a form field so that they could validate that it was really the correct credit card number because they were masking that field the rest of the time. And yeah, that's a big bozo no-no. But most of the time, at least I hope, you know, this is not the way that things roll, right? If it's a system critical process, yes, it's going to have access to that data. Hopefully the rest of the system doesn't. And that focus on the securable data that you really need to protect tends to point you to the most critical parts of the system. Mm-hmm. And you also usually find that there are interesting business rules around changes to this data. So you should pay close attention to anything that's triggered on a change, such as updates to other tables or other systems. You know, what does that mean? Why is it happening? Also, learn what regulatory requirements your system has, as those tend to be reflected in the business logic decisions. Right. Yeah, you'll see a lot of that in the business logic. So like, if you're looking at your business layer, you can usually find if, if it's well done, especially by an annoyed developer who does things the right way, but is annoyed by stupid rules, then they will tell you what is regulatory. <laughs> yeah, real quick. I mean, you know, honestly, you can simulate the average project manager's response to regulatory pressure by taking your favorite arachnophobic and running them headfirst into a spider web. <laughs> because they're usually just flailing trying to get away from it. Yeah. And so everybody knows where this stuff is. Start asking. Because those regulatory requirements are now part of the business logic. Like your business will not exist tomorrow if you don't follow those rules. Mm-hmm. Next, ask what areas of the system see the most traffic or load. Right. And this is you know kind of straightforward. This will let you know what areas of the system are most critical to the user, you know, barring, you know, some weird design thing. And this, sometimes this is different from what you might think looking at the product. Yeah. And I'll tell you, this is, this is an area that I've dealt with that has changed the way I interact, especially on Scrum and Agile teams. I have built entire web applications, like complicated months-long web applications that we get to the very end of it. And the whole time, we've been super focused on the way we were taking data in. And we get to the end, and they're like, oh, well, what we really needed is something to build these reports and to do this with the data once it's brought in. And we're like, we could have created a really simple form to bring in all this data. We're doing like all this stuff to it as it's coming in. And building calculations based on it, they didn't care about any of that. It was reports from it that they wanted. Yeah, We could have done all that on the back end. We didn't know that because we didn't talk to them about how they were going to use it well enough. Yeah, and when you have real numbers too, people use software in very strange ways or in ways that you wouldn't expect. That's why there's telemetry in stuff like Windows and Microsoft Word. Like, I think there's a subset of Word features that are used by like 98% of the users out there. And it's a very, like, it's barely better than WordPad. Yeah. And I mean, it's just almost nothing compared to what the whole app can do. And it's really easy to get bogged down in the minutia of that other 2% versus, hey, everybody opens a document and prints it. And it's plain text and maybe they change the font and put some bullets on it, but they don't do mail merge. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's really easy to get that kind of backward. And this is especially true when you get more complex software packages that are used in a variety of different contexts. Because then, you know, you got to slice the user base up and go, what does this role use it the most for versus what does this other role use versus what does the whole set of people use it for? And you're going to get a lot of information about what the users perceive the value of the app as versus what the business perceives it as. Mm -hmm. So along with that, this is the spot where you start looking at the read load versus the write load. Now, most apps tend to be read heavy. So if the read side receives more traffic than the write side, then that's what you need to focus on. I worked on a system that was content systems for news stations. It was extremely read heavy. You know, one journalist writes an article, 15,000 people read it, assuming it's a really small town. It's extremely read heavy. And so you're going to see rules around that and you're going to go, okay, what is the real critical value of this app based off of the users? A lot of your default assumptions change significantly when the app is write heavy or it has a lot of data. So for instance, if you have sensor data coming in from all over the place and you're doing some kind of big data thing on it, report that comes in, you know, that somebody looks at, there might just be one dude in a cubicle somewhere that reads it, but it's coming off of 50,000 devices out there. Mm -hmm. Your assumptions change and your business logic changes and the way you scale changes. So go ask about that. Figure out what side is getting hit harder because that will change the way the rest of the stack works. This was the whole thing with this one application that I worked on where we thought it was going to be very write heavy. We spent months building this write heavy. Like we thought their main business was bringing stuff in. Yeah. No. It was like running reports and billing and a little bit of writing with like some inspections and stuff, but mostly like permitting and things and like just going back and running these reports on what was already entered. And so we had to make a lot of changes there towards the end where we had we known from the beginning, like had we started off with the, what are you going to use this data for rather than what data do you need? Right. We would have been in a better place. Yeah. And it's, it's really easy to miss this kind of stuff. And the load questions will kind of point you in the right direction. So like mm-hmm. on the read side, understanding the caching rules. How long does something live before we refresh? Mm -hmm. That'll tell you a lot about how important that thing is and how often it changes. Whereas if it's, you know, a write-heavy app, understanding out-of-band processes is perhaps more important than caching. You look and say, okay, what happens to this data after we get it in? Because you're probably collecting a lot of it and then asynchronously doing something with it so that you're not breaking the right thread. Yeah. So that's kind of how you look at that. So the next question that you want to ask is what are the most performance critical tables in the database? Now, along the same lines as we've been talking, you'll probably have certain database tables that are very heavily involved in most system interactions. Yeah, and your hot database tables tend to have some of the most important or at least pivotal data in the system. And this varies from necessarily what's coming in data-wise, right? So like if every write to the system involves the user table, but you know it's just who's the user doing this, the user table is still a hot table. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not being altered, it's still involved in all those transactions. Yeah. And if optimizations have been made in the past to avoid overloading those tables, 
you need to find out what those optimizations are. These often point to some of the more squirrely spots in the application logic that you need to be aware of because they had to do something to handle load and not break the system. And it probably was prompted by an emergency, Mm -hmm. right? Like the system is falling over. How do we fix it today so I can go home for July 4th? Yeah, of which you need to be aware. Right. There are also some other signs that you'll see that can indicate that a database table is extremely critical. Lots of indexes, indexes, tend to indicate that the data is frequently searched in a variety of ways. Yeah, and so this tends to be reporting tables or operational tables that a whole lot of people are looking at. You know, so you're trying to manage your pain and suffering that happens when you have a lot of reads hitting it. Now, on the other side of it, if a table is, is kind of hot and it's big, but it doesn't have a lot of indices or indexes, I'm not sure which is the right one for computer science because I've heard both. I think it's probably indices. That can mean that insert and update performance is more critical than read performance, right? Like they want to get the data in there as fast as they can and they're not trying to mm-hmm. index it for searching. Like it'll tell you based off of that structure. Large numbers of foreign keys to other tables can also underscore the importance of a particular table. Yeah. Now I've done this myself where I actually had to explain it to the DBA who is not used to someone doing it as relational as I was. Yeah. Because she had worked on some much older systems where like most of what she had done previously had been on much older systems. And so she had not worked with the newer developers who were doing things more relationally instead of putting everything into like one or two large tables. Yeah. And and that can be interesting. In general, if you do an entity relationship diagram, you know, of, of any decent sized system, there's going to be a spot in the middle that looks like a spider mosh pit. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Uh, right. Like that's the spot, right? Like when you see that, whatever that is, you need to pay attention to that. Yeah. Because that's a hot table because it's going to be involved in a whole bunch of other stuff. And what is that? How does data get in? How does data get out? What are the rules around that data? That's probably going to be system critical. And so this is a way of looking at it that will tell you what's going on. Now, Mm -hmm. I'll also add that if you have a table with a large number of rows or columns, that's also usually worth looking at. So if if you've got some table out there that's got 150 columns, guarantee you that thing is critical. And it's probably critical to, you know, some really old part of the system that nobody wants to touch because they're not refactoring the database. Yep. And so go find that. Why is it critical? Why are there so many columns? Or if you've got, you know, a quarter billion rows in that table, it's important. Because mm-hmm. you wouldn't be storing that crap, right? Like it's painful from a sysadmin perspective to do so. So you don't do it if you're not getting value out of it. So that's really the key to a lot of this is if it's something that is on the extreme, it's like that for a reason. Yeah. I mean, basically what I did is I said, okay, as a developer, what are the things that I can see as a dev that tell me what the value is? And then I shifted and I said, what can I look at as a DBA? What can I look at as marketing? Like, that's how I did this outline. Yeah. It's just going outward from being a developer to whose view on the value prop we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So the next one is marketing, actually, is what language is being used when marketing this product to prospective clients? 
So when software is being sold to a potential client, the way that the sales team describes it can often point towards the most important feature of the software for the buyer of the software. Notice I didn't say the user because that's completely different. The buyer has a different set of objectives. You know, you talked about that with the reports thing earlier. Mm-hmm. Your frontline users may be like, oh, I need this thing to be really fast entering data, but their manager is going, I need to see how effective those people are. Yeah. Completely different set of constraints. Very true. Most software is purchased by people who only use a small sliver of the functionality in the software. And a lot of times represent only a tiny slice of the load on the application. Yeah, because the manager isn't going to be in there all day, every day, unless it's a managerial application. Yeah. They just aren't. With this one, the issue we had was because we were all about, our team was on the impression that their big thing was data entry. Because their previous way of putting it in, we were were taking a people mail in a form and they type it into, like employees type it in and putting that into an online form. So yeah, a big part of it was, hey, making this easy to use for their customers. But what was not a big consideration from the beginning, which would have changed some of the design decisions we made, was how is that data being used? Right. And there was a huge emphasis on getting the data in because that's we were changing how that happened. But we could have done that in a way that would have worked out better for them. Though We were still able to give them what they needed, but we could have done it in a way that was easier on us and more maintainable and better code had we known that going in from the get-go. Yeah, and this is why I always try to tell people that the buyer is the most important person as far as like a group of users in the system. Whoever is writing the check for your software, you need to make that person happy first. Otherwise, there aren't more checks coming. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, like this is kind of a brainstorming exercise to go, okay, what are they actually looking at? The real question here is what do the managers of your typical users want from the software? So a big thing to look into here is stuff like reporting and audit trail requirements for the application. Those tend to show what management is looking for or what security is looking for, which tends to hit management anyway. It's also really useful to look into the types of questions that are asked of managers during user onboarding because these tend to point towards what system roles are available for the users and what those roles mean. So if they bring a new person on, what questions get asked? Okay, does this person have access to accounting? Okay, you have an accounting department. There's accounting critical functions that have to have something. Yeah. Now you know that. So... Along the same lines with the marketing stuff, you should also ask what is the main competitive market advantage of this product compared to its competitors and what is their main advantage over you? Asking this question will tell you why your company's clients use your software instead of a competitor's software. You know, if you're in a governmental business, you may have to kind of play with this a little bit and go, okay, what do other states do that we don't do and vice versa, right? Because you're trying to look at mental models here. Not just other states, but what do other departments within the state? Yeah, that's another good way to do it. That's one thing that I've looked at is what are other departments within the state doing? What are other, you know, if you're at a local city government level, what are other cities nearby doing? Yeah. What have they built that we can use? Where can we share the market and where are we competitors? Yeah. And where are their assumptions different than ours? Right. Because Mm -hmm. if you're in Washington, D.C., you're probably assuming an extremely high-speed internet connection, all that stuff. Tennessee, 
you're assuming that that's likely but not guaranteed. Rural Alaska, you're assuming that it is not there. There are some parts of Tennessee where you have to assume you will have none. Right. I've written some things for people who were traveling to those areas. Yeah. And so you, you kind of look at that and go, you know, what's the competitor doing and what are we doing? Not from a perspective of trying to compete with them, but what's the difference in the model here? Yeah. This tends to include a list of features that your software has that the competitors does not and vice versa. It'll also show you the spots where your app works better in certain use cases than a competitor's. And if those areas are important enough to change buying behavior, you need to find out why, because that points towards some value being delivered that the other software doesn't. Mm -hmm. And on that, you can see where the emphasis has been put historically on your software. Right. Because, you know, you may look at it and... I don't know if you've ever done this, and not at my current job, but at uh, a place that I was consulting. I just asked them, I'm like, well, why aren't you doing it this way that others are doing it? And they're like, well, historically, we have had this particular market share. Like, this was our bread and butter over here. Yeah. And we just added these features because our people over here were wanting them. Yeah. And, you know, I can give you an example. My dad uses this software you know, for the oil distributorship that is built for small oil jobbers, right? So they don't have a sophisticated accounting system. They basically need QuickBooks with some crap in there for all the stuff that goes with oil, right? You know, terminal evaporation allowance, you know, how you get it delivered, you know, all the cert stuff, all, you know, all that kind of stuff. He looked at some other software for oil jobbers, but it turns out it's for these big companies that are in like major cities that have a whole bunch of locations and they have like, these massive GL, you know, account breakdowns and all this kind of stuff. And when he was looking at it, it was going to be so much work to make a ticket that it wasn't worth his time. Mm -hmm. And it's because they serve different markets. So when you can get that, you know, competitive analysis, you can say, okay, when I'm writing code for this system, how does this user that I have envisioned, what are they going to do with it versus some general person in the industry? Like you can look at them and go, all right, it's this guy. So it's kind of like the user personas thing. This is a way to back into that when the organization you're working for doesn't believe that they need that because they already have one. They just don't have it official. Also, you want to pay attention to any sales and marketing pages on your company's website. Not only will this help you understand the vocabulary being used in your system, sometimes the way your company uses a word isn't the way the English language uses that word. Well, the last place I worked, we had a thing that was called a submission. And what a submission was, was basically, here's a wad of data coming into the system that you got to do stuff with. And the way that I understood the word submission to mean was you lost a war. Oh. <laughs> you hands up, we submit, we quit. You know, it's not the same word. And so when you go and you look at the vocabulary used on the marketing site or the sales site or, you know, help pages, instructions, interactions, but, you know, like the knowledge base, yeah. look at that and see what the difference is between the dialect of English being used at your company and actual English. And you won't be as confused if you do that early on. Also pay attention to the application features at each pricing level. That is if you can see it. And the thing is, this is going to let you know things like where your feature flags for paid features exist and what the relative value is. We had conversations when you and I were consulting together about this because we were helping before the app launched. 
And it was like, all right, what is your going to be your base feature? What's your premium? What are the paid features? And where do you need to put the flags? And we were helping them determine that. Yeah, because sometimes they're not in a good place or you know, there's historical reasons why stuff is broken down the way it is. Like you'll get a lot of stuff figuring out where the feature flags are because this is where your software mutates. It becomes another software package, either enhanced or crippled up or, you know, changing shape or whatever. Like this is what makes your software different. This changes the mental model around your software. Mm -hmm. So the final question for you to ask is, what are the worst consequences of a system outage to a client. You know, another approach you can take is to ask people at the company what happens to clients when the software goes down. You know, this could be anything from a minor inconvenience to being a major problem that stops them from doing business. Yeah, and the consequences that occur along with an outage will tend to inform the way your application handles things like errors. I will tell you all this made it in the news. So you've probably already read about it. But uh, a little outage that affected me recently. Christmas Eve, the credit card machines at every Kroger went down. Yeah. Yes. I was lucky because I went to Publix for some reason. That was smart. We are getting ready. And Amanda was working. Mom asked me to go pick up some stuff. I was getting some stuff for myself and Amanda. Like just at a list of things to get at the store. I go to Kroger, I get like a basket full of stuff. And I go up, go through the line, I get up there, she's like, our credit card machines aren't working. We've got an ATM right there. And I don't know about you guys, but I kind of stopped carrying ATM debit card with me because it's just... It's a risk. Yeah, unless I'm going specifically for that, I don't carry it with me. I carry credit cards because if my credit card gets stolen, you know, I just call them up and like, that's it. If, if it gets stolen and used, it's got more protection yeah. on it. And so that's pretty much all I carry now. And, you know, I pay my credit cards off at the end of the month. But uh, I was like, what am I supposed to do? I, don't, I can't do that. I'm like, I'm not going to pay for a uh, cash advance on my credit card. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And then the girl at the counter kind of started getting snippy with me. And I was just like, you know yeah. what? I was late to pick up my nieces. My sister had to drive down to pick up her husband in Chattanooga, and I was supposed to take my nieces ice skating during this time, and I was late to pick them up because I was running to get food to make them something to eat before we went ice skating. And so I called my mom and talked to my sister too. My sister's like, I tell you what, don't worry about it. I'll make them a sandwich. I'll bring you a sandwich too. (laughs) Yeah, because you sound hangry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They lost countless amounts of thousands and thousands of dollars across a minute the country. Yeah. Over a software outage. Yeah. And so this tells you that, hey, you know, point of sale is kind of important to a grocery store, which is probably something you should know anyway, if you're going, you know, <laughs> going to a, like a grocery store just in general. But a lot of times you'll see stuff like this and it's, oh, well, what happens if the system goes down? Well, our you know, our field agents can't do their jobs. Or, oh, well, you know, patient safety is compromised. There's a laundry list of very bad things that could happen or things that are just like, ah, well, we can't file that report today. We'll file it tomorrow. Yeah. And most of your software that's really doing well right now 
tends to be more like painkillers than vitamins. And so the system goes down. It's a problem. That's why somebody's paying to keep it up. When you're learning about this, it's a good idea to ask about your service level agreements or SLAs, both for your app and any service on which it depends, as well as the procedure for outage windows. Right. So like, let's say that you have something that's like, hey, once a quarter, we take the system down and we update it. Okay. What happens to the clients during that time? How much notice does the client need beforehand? What's expected of the client before that starts? What is the client going to expect when it comes back up? Those are really good questions. The same thing applies with SLAs because software does go down. But an SLA indicates how quickly you are legally obligated to get that software back up after an outage. Yeah. You know, before you get just nailed with all kinds of things. When looking at dependent services, it's usually good to compare the SLAs with your own. If their SLA is over a longer period, this tends to show sort of out of band processing that isn't time sensitive. Right. So if you're saying, hey, I can have no more than an hour downtime in a month, and I'm depending on an email service provider that says, hey, I can have four hours of downtime a month, then you know that. That is done out of band and it's not critical to your SLA because it can't be because otherwise somebody else is exposing you to risks and lawyers are going to come chase you down in your sleep and, you know, read you boring legal documents. And, you know, it's just going to be madness and chaos, you know, dogs and cats living together. You can't have that. So we know that if their SLA is less stringent than yours, that they're an out of band process unless you're dumb, which also check for that because some companies are dumb, Uh, you know, and it may be a good time to ask questions about that because if you're the person that found that and goes, hey, this doesn't make sense and you raise it up the chain, that looks pretty good if you're correct. Yeah. Now guys, a lot of the time you can learn the right things by asking the right questions and then digging deeper into the answers you get. While you can learn things the hard, slow way, if you can learn quickly, you often end up at a substantial advantage for doing so. Really good programmers tend to be at least somewhat project managers as they need to have a deep understanding of what they're automating and why in order to be effective. If you can learn the business rules of the software you're writing and do it quickly enough, you'll make a great impression at your new job. That pretty much wraps us up. Before we close everything out, Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, Here's something I've seen at a few jobs that I've had, and I don't understand this because it doesn't work. I've worked with a lot of developers who may work somewhere for even three or four years and never understand how the company they're working for makes money. And like, if you're doing this, you need to stop right now and you need to figure that out. You want to be in the line of that stuff. You want to be working on the systems that make your company money, not the systems that are necessarily the most glamorous. Because if it's the most glamorous and it's not making money, it's probably costing money. Do not put yourself in a position where you're a cost center. If you do put yourself in a position where you're a cost center, you need to get out of that. Because if you don't understand where the money's coming in, you're not in a position to be protected when less of that money comes in. You want to be the guy that doesn't get downsized when a recession happens versus the dude that's working on the new cool stuff that provides no business value that people are paying for. So always be really, really careful about that and make sure that you align yourself with the business value that actually 
makes your paycheck happen. If you don't do that, you're not going to survive the next recession and it's coming. I'm just going to put that as, as bluntly as I can. Like, There's only so much time before the economy regresses to the mean. And if you're not in the position where you are providing the value that makes the company stay afloat, then you're going to sink before the company does. That's all I got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.